Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with tales from those who worship them, all set against the podcast-friendly and spirit-lifting backdrop of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter, and each week a special guest joins me to talk about the five species of bird that mean the most to them. The five they would bundle onto the ark to survive the inevitable mass extinction event coming our way. My special guest today is Megan McCubbin. Megan is a zoologist, photographer, wildlife TV presenter, and most recently an author, with a keen interest in wildlife welfare and the illegal wildlife trade. Last year, to help people cope with lockdown, she co-created the Self-Isolating Bird Club, and this led to the publication of her first book, Back to Nature, How to Love Life and Save It. Megan is now writing her second book, has a new show out soon on CBBC on sharks, and is about to start another run on Springwatch. And somehow she's found time to chat to me today. Megan, hello. Thanks so much for coming on Golden Grenades today. How are you? Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad at all. I'm just hoping that the neighbour's extension building keeps quiet for the next hour or so, so we're not interrupted <laughs> too much. And I've got the dog at my feet, so he better not kick off as well. But Squeezing you know, away. <laughs> it's the perils of home working, isn't it? Which I guess you know all about through Self-Isolating Bird Club. Yeah, well, it's a, it was a Self-Isolating Bird Club as a technical uh, feet actually right now there's sirens going off which you can probably <laughs> hear which is all part of it when you're working from home it's the everyday sounds you know um, but yeah South Isolating Bird Club I mean we started off really small it was a live broadcast using just a phone um, just to showcase the first patch of celandines that came out last spring um, and then it grew from there and we started doing these daily broadcasts for an hour and uh, Fabian Harrison who is our tech genius got involved and uh, oh god, those sirens are getting really loud now. <laughs> they're <laughs> so coming for sorry. you. They are. They're coming. They're on their way. They're hearing what I'm up to. Um, yeah. So Fabian got involved and made it into this entire production. I, how he did it from his living room in Norwich, I've got no idea. But um, before we knew it, we had bits of tech arriving and wires to plug in here and there and make it a bit more polished. And um, yeah, he did an amazing job in making it the production that it turned out to be. I mean, it was a is a an absolutely fantastic thing, and I love the the punk DIY, you know, sometimes quite anarchic nature of the presentation and the content. It it's been a real hit, obviously not just here but all around the globe, and with young and old alike. In fact, my mum is an avid watcher, and she had a couple of injuries in, in lockdown and throughout the past year, and you know, she really looked forward to to logging on every day and watching the show. So. From me, thank you so much because it, it was Aww. a real, it was it was a lovely thing for me knowing that there was something in that day that cheered her up. Oh, um, so nice, so nice to hear that. It's um, it's all we never knew what it was going to turn out to be. We had no expectations or no idea of what it would eventually turn into. There was no plan. It was all unrehearsed and totally, as you say, a bit punk in its approach. So it's, I'm just so grateful that everyone connected with it in the way that they have, and it meant so much to people and us as well because it got us through lockdown as much as it did people watching. So it's really lovely. I also love a a project and have to have something on the go, which is why I started this podcast, I guess. Thinking back to when you you set up SIBC, at the same time I thought, right, what can I do to cheer people up? So I set up Fantasy Birding and Quarantine, which was loosely based on fantasy football and the garden bird watch, uh, spotting birds in your garden. But it was based on activity, not just counting the numbers of the birds. So have you seen a robin sitting on a spade? Yes, you get I extra like points. Yeah, have you seen a wood pigeon doing a wing clap? an extra point are they building a nest it i have to say it was less successful than your venture but it was it was fun for a couple of weeks you need uh, a fabian harrison yeah that's what i was missing i'll yeah. have to i'll have to tap him up yeah give him an email <laughs> <laughs> so as you know this podcast is really all about birds your five favorites are the five that mean the most to you but your background is in all animals and you, obviously your main background is in zoology and scientific research that's focused on, you know, everything from big cats to primates to bears and sharks. Yeah, um, my background is in predominantly predatory behaviour. Um, anything with big teeth and big claws, I used to say that I was just automatically drawn to. Um, and it all started when I was about 12 years old, when I started working at the Wild Heart Sanctuary on the Isle of Wight. It was at that time that I was doing my GCSEs and I wasn't sure whether I could do science, if I'm honest. So I'm dyslexic and I really, really struggle with maths, very much so. And 
my reading was way behind everyone else's. And, you know, the idea of picking up a book to me was actually quite intimidating. So I did my qualifications in drama. Little did I know actually how helpful that would be in my career today. Um, but I, yeah, I studied Lambda and I did all my performing arts qualifications and I wanted to go to drama school in London. So I had all these ambitions, but, you know, I'd grown up in and around animals. And for me, I, it was what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be a zoologist. I just didn't think that I would be able to do it with the maths element of it. I then started working my summers at the Wild Heart Trust and I was volunteering with them uh, as a keeper, as an educational talk giver, you know, just helping out with husbandry, you know, going in and cleaning up after the tortoises or the jaguars or whichever, you know, needed a good old clear out. And I met four tigers, uh, Zia, Zina, Diamond and Aisha. And for me, I owe everything to those cats because they kind of turned my life around. They are hand-reared individuals, they were hand-reared individuals. Um, they've all passed away now, sadly, but um, they were a similar age to me and I felt like we kind of grew up together. So I would spend my weekends just kind of sat with them, talking to them. And that might sound silly, but you, if you chuff to a tiger, a chuff is a, a kind of a friendly call that they make. And I'll do a demonstration. It's not brilliant. Don't judge me for it. Um, but it's the best I can do. So a tiger chuff sounds a bit like this. And it's a, a friendly greeting that they give to one another. And I remember the first time that I chuffed to Zia, who was kind of the the drama queen of the group. You know, she liked the attention. She was a bit of a princess. And um, she chuffed back and she used to follow me around her enclosure because I just spent all my time with them. And of course, with the other animals around the zoo, I looked after the porcupines. I remember training the porcupines to come up and stand on my knees and I'd hand feed them carrots whilst giving a talk. Um, you know, there was Darwin, the tawny owl, who... I absolutely fell in love with. He was, um, again, hand-reared by everyone at the zoo. And I used to go to sleep at night and he would be living in the living room at this point in time. And um, <laughs> sleeping in the room with a nocturnal animal, not a good idea. You don't get much sleep. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can imagine. And he, he, no, it was um, kind of chaotic. So having spent time with those big cats, those tigers, I just something just clicked. And I was like, if I don't give zoology a go and try and you know learn with my dyslexia, dyslexia is always going to be a big part of me. Um, but I just had to figure out a different way of learning the science, a different way of learning the maths. And I worked really, really hard and I ended up changing all of my A-level choices <laughs> and um, ended up studying a foundation year in biological science and then going on to zoology. And I'm so glad I did it. So that for me is what started off the predatory element was those four tigers. And then it expanded into bears and sharks and everything else. So that's kind of my background, I suppose, in a nutshell. Fantastic. You can talk to tigers. That's amazing. Oh, you've just got to learn to chuff. They'll do it back if they can hear you. <laughs> they, they really will. So go, go next time you see a tiger, give it a chuff and see what happens. <laughs> next time you see a tiger, I love the way you say that as if that's going to happen. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, you never know. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously uh, narrowing my mindset too much to think that I might not meet a tiger. I, and I need to make that happen. Invite one for tea, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. They're great dinner guests. Yeah, great. <laughs> Recently as well, you've done a recording for CBBC, haven't you, on sharks? I have, yeah, Planet Defenders, which I'm so excited about. It's a project that I'm actually so passionate and proud to have been a part of. It's a really international series. It's got uh, six conservationists and filmmakers from around the world, and we all focus on one topic that we're really passionate about. And for me, I've you know always loved sharks. I've researched them in the Bahamas, and I never really saw many around the UK. Although I knew that there are 40 different shark species that we've got in the UK. Some are resident here all year round, others are migratory. I went off to Penzance in Cornwall to go and find blue sharks. And I was swimming with blue sharks. It's the most amazing experience. They're these beautiful colours, you know, purple, electric blue, absolutely stunning. And I wanted to understand more about the threats that they face because we know that shark populations are plummeting massively they're, and they're so important for the health of our oceans. You know, when we think of shark persecution, we think of shark finning. Yes, that's a big issue. Of course it is. But there are other issues facing sharks that are equal to that. And the UK is complicit in quite a few of those different things. Mm. Shark meat is a really big problem. A lot of kind of deep sea species are caught for their squalene. Now, squalene is a, a liver oil um, and it's used in our cosmetics. So if you go and look at you know, your lipstick or your cleanser or your soap, if it has squalene in it, you know, it, it could quite possibly come from sharks. Um, and we also eat it in our fish and chips, which is what the documentary for CBBC is about. 
So I go off to fish and chip shops and I buy something called rock salmon. And rock salmon is an umbrella term which can encompass a variety of different shark species. And I take DNA samples from the battered fish that I buy and I send it off for analysis. And 100% of the samples that I tested came back as spiny dogfish. Spiny dogfish is a beautiful little shark species. Globally, it's vulnerable. And around UK waters, it's declined by 95%. It's a shark that I will probably never see alive in my lifetime. And the only time I've ever got close to it is battered in a bit of newspaper. And to me, that's desperately sad. And I mean, it's worth saying that the sharks that we as rock salmon, um, spiny dogfish, comes not from UK waters, but is imported in from uh, fisheries in America and Canada. They argue that it's sustainable. However, to me, firstly, if a species is listed as globally vulnerable, that's not sustainable. <laughs> like it's not, we shouldn't be eating something that's vulnerable. It just doesn't sit well. And secondly, what hope have we possibly got going into fish and chip shops when things are labelled as something different? If it was, if it was labelled spiny dogfish, vulnerable shark, would people yeah. buy it? Probably not. For me, it's what, the, what Planet Defenders is all about. And I explore all those issues. I speak to Zach Goldsmith, who is the Minister for DEFRA and the Oceans. All the films are fantastic and it's a really great series. Excellent. And I mean, those are things that people just won't realise. I didn't know half of that. You know, I've learned something today already. <laughs> so look forward to that. Just before we get into your birds, I was, there was a couple of things I was going to ask you about as well. The first is your photography. So... In 2019, I believe you became a judge on the Young Bird Photographer of the Year competition. But actually, you won a competition, didn't you, for the RSPCA when you were much younger? I have been. I won the under 12 category for RSPCA Young Photographer of the Year, which was really, really lovely. And I've, yeah, I've been taking photos for as long as I can remember. For me, it's, it's an artistic thing. I really love being creative. Photography is all about storytelling. It's a really important tool in terms of conservation, because if you show a photograph to an audience, you immediately transport them there to that moment. You know, you can get them to feel things, you can get them to think things, you can really relay information visually that can sometimes be more impactful than if it was written with words. And anyone from around the world can look at an image. You know, you don't have to be speaking the same language to feel and get that story. Yeah, photography for me is just a really exciting thing. And I love, you know, being a judge on these kind of competitions because I think they mean so much for conservation. And it's just nice seeing other people's, how other people view the world, you know, because we all view it differently and therefore our photos are all different. And that's something that really excites me. Yeah. And different sort of mediums stimulate different people as well so it's a, it's a really powerful tool like you say I was looking on your website and some of your pictures man those goshawk pictures and yeah gannets they're two <laughs> of my favorite species anyway they, they would definitely be in my top 10 I think both of those but yeah you've got some fantastic pictures there thank you it's very nice of you um yeah the gannets was amazing that, those photos were taken around Bass Rock which is one of the most active sites for gannets and um yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, that was actually the photograph that I won the RSPCA competition with. So I was right. only 11 when I took those gannet photos. Um, and it was really hard because we were on a very small boat and it was very choppy. And the gannets were diving in all around, feeding, and to try and get a still sharp image in those conditions with fast moving birds, you're rocking around, um, was really tricky. And I think the first time I ever felt a little bit seasick, but it was great fun. I do have a confession about the goshawk images. They weren't wild birds. They were um, ones that were at the hawk. Oh, no. (laughs) Still counts. It still counts. It still counts. Yeah. So it was an amazing opportunity to go and photograph them in the woodland. They were flying around, being flown and, yeah, perching up and in in amongst all those dappled leaves. So goshawks, yeah. I mean, what an amazing thing. We actually had one fly into our living room window, a wild one, (laughs) in the spring. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, so we were really lucky this year because we had a goshawk nest probably less than 200 metres away from our house in the New Forest. Um, so I would walk the dogs and, you know, they'd nest really high up in the trees, very noisy. I mean, you can get away with being a noisy nest when you are the top predator of the world. You don't <laughs> yeah. have to worry about making all the sound because nothing's coming to get you. You were out getting everything else. So, right. yeah, they were a very noisy nest and the poodles you know the dogs were quite interested in that and um I'd go past every day to kind of see how they were doing 
and occasionally you'd see you know little faces pe- peeking out or you know you'd see mum or dad coming in and we noticed that the chicks had fledged and they were often we kind of sometimes would see them um and the following day I remember just a crashing sound it just you know I was in another part of the house and it just sounded like an explosion and went outside and the dogs were outside at the time barking hysterically at this poor goshawk which had crashed into the window and fell down and was on the ground and um, we went and picked it up and put it in a box and it was quite underweight it was one of the fledglings it was one of the young ones and we ended up taking it to the hawk conservancy where they have a bird of prey hospital turns out that it did have a leg injury not from crashing into the window the injury was quite old it was probably sustained in the nest and it nice. had a, a foot surgery and then i was able to release it live on sibc back into the woods where it came from so ah, yeah fantastic. amazing they smell great as well do they what do they smell like like quite musty but quite intense like yeah it, it was good it was a really good smell <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's great i love that yeah um i have a, a friend emily who works for the the UK, well, she she runs the UK Little Owl Project, and she's always talking about the smells of the different owls and which ones smelled best. But you obviously have that as well. You have to really? sniff it. You know, <laughs> the first thing you do, people look at things. If if you see a feather, you always, I always pick it up and smell it. Yeah. It's just, I don't know why. It's um, but I really recommend it for anyone out there collecting things. Always smell it because you'd be amazed at the diversity of smells. <laughs> That's fantastic. I was jealous of you having nesting goshawk, but uh, now I'm jealous that you know what they smell like. Uh, and that wasn't something I expected today. <laughs> One on a, on a slightly different topic, just before we get into the birds, you're a champion of a very wide range of wildlife charities and causes, including your role as youth ambassador for the League Against Cruel Sports. And I just wondered, obviously, being very vocal about activities such as fox hunting and raptor persecution can sometimes lead to unwanted attention and criticism and abuse in some cases. And I just wondered if that was, you know, when you took on that role, whether you had to think twice about it and the flack that you might get for that. Um, yeah, it does lead on to some um, negativity, I suppose. Mm. But it, for me, I didn't think twice about it because... I went into zoology because I love animals. Everybody does that. You know, the reason why we do what we do is because of a, of a passion for them, a curiosity that we've got for wildlife. Today, unfortunately, we can't just love wildlife, you know, because it is facing so many different threats. It's not enough just to love it. If you love it, you have to stand up for it. And that's kind of a, a mentality that I really stand by. You know, you can't just you know, adore them because they're cute and lovely and fluffy and they, you know, they make you happy. You know, we've we've got to really fight for them now um, and give back to them what they give to us. And when it comes to issues, you know, that some people deem controversial, I would argue aren't so controversial, um, you know, like fox hunting, for example, or grouse mm-hmm. shooting. Mm-hmm. It's important that we stand up for the, for the science, first and foremost. You know, peer-reviewed science is what I base everything off. And we use that science to campaign for a better and brighter future, not just for wildlife, but for us too. So, yeah, I do get some flack occasionally for, for speaking out. We've got, we've got to stick our head above the parapet because yeah. if we don't do that, then nothing's going to change. And if it doesn't change, then we're set on a trajectory where we're going to lose, you know, everything. And yeah. I don't want to see that happen. And I'll, and I'll fight as hard as I can to, to protect what I love at the end of the day. That's fantastic. It'll be inspiration to other people to do the same. And as long as you've got the evidence base behind you, it, it, it's hard to argue with science, isn't it? I know people do, exactly. but ultimately, yes. you know, facts, facts will win. Great stuff. Right. We're going to get down to business. So, okay. as you know, This show is based around the not entirely ludicrous concept that we have continued our precipitous hell slide into an environmental disaster of gargantuan proportions, a bit like what we've just been talking about, I guess. And most animals have become now extinct. In almost Noah-esque fashion, you can choose five bird species to survive with you in the resulting post-apocalyptic wasteland. And then, in a frankly ridiculous and reductive manner, you must choose one of these birds to be your ultimate champion and go beak to beak in the Golden Grenade's best bird battle against my favourite, the awesome and deadly peregrine falcon. So, without further ado, please tell us about your first bird. Bird number one. 
Well, I have chosen for my first bird the iconic, the beautiful, the elegant barn owl. I love barn owls. I really do. You know, they might be fragile and delicate, but they are built as the perfect hunters, in my opinion, pretty much. They're, they're an incredible bird. And actually, I, when I was setting up this podcast, I didn't really envisage that I would get lots of people picking similar birds. So we've had a few duplicates. We've had Swift, I think, four or five times. And barn owl has been mentioned a couple of times before. Ah. So it is a really popular bird and not one that I realized, I don't think, was so well loved. But they are great. And when you see them, and you know, often in winter time when they're a bit more visible, you know, that ghostly form drifting around at the corner of a field at sunset or dusk, you know, amazing birds. I've got, I've got a real affinity for them. I fell in love with owls really young, um, all because of a barn owl called Marmite. Now, Marmite, again, was a, a captive a captive bar now. Um, he was hand-reared at the Hawk Conservancy, which is the same place that we took that goshawk, going back about 20 years or so. So when live animals were used in talks and various different things, which wouldn't be the case now so much, but um, back then it was. And we had um, uh, Chris Packham, who's my stepdad, was doing some talks, and uh, well, he was asked to do my school assembly. And I was only about, I can't be, I couldn't have been older than five or six years old. So Chris thought it was a great idea that we would use Marmite and fly him across everybody's heads in the assembly. And uh, in the meantime, he would he was living in our downstairs bathroom. And I remember coming home from school one day, opening the door, and there Marmite was sat on the toilet. <laughs> and um, I was quite surprised because I wasn't expecting him to be there. So a couple of days before the school assembly talk, I was learning how to fly. Marmite was the first bird that I ever learned how to fly. And, you know, with you've got your glove on and you get the yoke and the chick in your hand and you whistle and the bird comes flying and lands effortlessly on your on your wrist and uh, Marmite was really great you know he really flew brilliantly and was really keen to do well and he was really affectionate and quite a shy but quite a characterful bird and it came to the day when we had to do the assembly and everything was going well uh, up until the point that I had to come up on stage to help fly him came up on stage and we're in front of maybe five six hundred people here and uh, Marmite flew once from me over to Chris and then I was calling him back and I just saw Marmite look up and I thought to myself oh this is unusual he doesn't really do this very often <laughs> and he flew up and he sat on the beam of the ceiling for about eight hours <laughs> and um, we couldn't get him down and I loved that because I just thought you know what yes you you know do what you want to do because <laughs> that's what he wanted to do and um you know I like the unpredictability of it so I loved Marmite since that point and would go and visit him and um absolutely you know fell in love with owls in general but barn owls for me they're just such a beautiful sight uh, and such an amazing story you know they declined massively um it's quite a sad story you know and I think it was in um about 1987 barn owls were at their lowest point ever there was only about 4,500 breeding pairs in the UK, which was a huge decline of about 70%. So that's a real big drop. Um, and that was just primarily because of a lack of nesting sites. So this huge initiative kicked up and it was I think it was done by the Barn Owl Conservation Network. And they made these boxes essentially because with the number of old barns, you know, which of course where they like to nest had been ripped down. So they put up these uh, boxes and um, they put up thousands of them all over the country. And today, about 80% of barn owls nest in these man-made boxes because there simply isn't the natural space for them to nest anymore. Um, but it has really you know, done wonders for the population because now there's about 12,000 breeding pairs around the UK. Um, so numbers have gone up significantly. But with barn owls, they are, whilst they're the perfect hunters, you know, the asymmetrical ears so that they can pinpoint their prey in those open grass and fields, whilst they're totally dead silent predators. You know, you never hear a barn owl coming. They are just, you know, quieter than quiet. They are really affected by climate change. You know, when they get wet, their feathers are very fine. And when they get wet, they just are unable to hunt. And we're seeing wetter winters and, you know, drier summers, which makes it increasingly hard for barn owls to find prey. And out of all the owls, Barn owls have the fastest metabolic rate, so they need to be feeding on rodents, you know, much more so at a higher frequency than other species of owl. So they are incredibly sensitive and they're really good indicators for climate change. And we're starting now to see that their numbers are going down because of this change in weather. 
Um, so yeah, they've got a bit of a rough time ahead, I think, Barnaz. But in the UK, we've got kind of the most northern population of Barnaz. You know, they've got some breeding in Scotland, and they, that's kind of the limit of their range in terms of how north they get. So, you know, we're starting to see the pinch there, really. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, they are stunning, absolutely stunning, and always just so exciting to see. When the sun's going down, they light up when they're flying over the fields in this kind of golden light and their white, stunning plumage. I mean... You can't get a better sight than that, I'd argue. No, I think I think in terms of iconic birds and and birds that you could see with relatively little effort and a little bit of luck, maybe you know that that there's not many as good as that. Um, they are fantastic. I have to ask, why was mm. why was Marmite named Marmite? Because that implies that not many people like, or, or at least fifty percent of people didn't like him, and he sounds awesome. Yeah. No, he's lovely. And um, it was nothing to do with that. So the, the Hawking Seventh have a thing where they have a theme every year when they name birds. And that year was condiments. <laughs> <laughs> so Marmite was Marmite. <laughs> was there a ketchup? Uh, I have to ask, but I think there was. You know, there uh, was a mayo, ketchup, mustard. <laughs> <laughs> mustard. Yeah, I, I need more detail. I want to know what the other birds okay. were called. That's amazing. I'll let you know. Yeah, please do. So... Let's move on. What is your second choice? Bird number two. two, two, two. Hen Harrier. Has what to a be bird. A what a bird, right? Yeah. The males in particular. I mean, come on. That plumage, that eye, that grey colour. I mean, iconic. Iconic. Um, and for me, a bird that is incredibly special. Hen Harriers are the most persecuted bird of prey that we have around the UK. They are really in a lot of trouble because they share their habitat with grouse moors and they will take grouse because why wouldn't they <laughs> take grouse when there's, you know, a huge biomass of readily available prey? Why wouldn't they do it? So they are unfortunately kind of poisoned and shot out of the sky at you know, unprecedented numbers and they face severe declines. But you know, there's a lot of kind of conservation efforts going on. Many of the individuals are now tagged at the nest. And last year I was so, so fortunate and grateful to have the opportunity to go and visit a hen harrier nest in northern Wales and I'd never seen a hen harrier before I'd never seen one not an adult not a chick nothing and so for me I went on a mission to go and see them and I uh, was lucky enough to meet Keith Othard who is a licensed monitor of hen harriers so he's got very strict licenses to go into the nest to monitor the birds and see how they're doing and he spends most of his time sat up on hills, recording behaviour, watching them, keeping an eye on them. And this population in Wales is actually one of the less persecuted areas. So the population in that area is actually doing quite well, which is quite an anomaly for the rest of the UK. But it was a, an amazing experience to go and see them. So, And it was quite late on in the season. So it was one of the um, last nests that were remaining that had chicks in it. And he needed a helper to go into the nest to just help give them the once over. So I was... So excited when I heard that news. And, I bet, um, yeah. The, yeah, we were able to confirm that the female wasn't near. So you don't want to go in, of course, when the female's around. You don't want to, you know, want to make the stress as minimal as possible. And you go in very quickly and move in a certain way and do things very, you know, fast and effortlessly to, to cause minimal disturbance. And we were walking through this really thick heather. And honestly, I almost tripped over the nest <laughs> because they're so tucked in there. And I remember kind of, he, I was looking at Keith and he kind of pointed down and I looked at him about a metre away from my feet. There was this, you know, quite large nest with these three chicks in there. And I was, I think my mouth just opened and I was shocked because they were much bigger than I thought they would be. And they were, you know, kind of looking at us like, what are these things doing? <laughs> <laughs> How old were they at the time? They were, I think, about three weeks old. Okay. Three weeks old. So they were kind of starting to get their primary feathers coming in. You could see their pins coming out. But I was amazed because that was where I learned you could distinguish male and female hen harrier chicks based on the colour of their eyes. So I, did, I had no idea about this. So if the iris is slightly blue, then it's a male. And if it's brown, then it's female. So there were two females and one male there. And um, we had to kind of weigh a male to check that he was going to be ready to put a satellite tag, which he was then fitted with a week after my visit. So that was just an unbelievable experience to see that. Oh. And then we were sat on the hill watching the adults coming back and forward, watching them drop, you know, watching the male come back with food and he would pass the, the food off to the female in this beautiful aerial display. 
the female would come and just drop the drop the prey into the nest where the chicks eat it for themselves. They don't have any help. It's not like you know goshawk chicks, for example, where the female will pick out the pick out bits of flesh and feed it to them. The the hen harrier chicks are a bit more independent, so they just have at it. <laughs> yeah, sorted themselves. There you go, kids. There's tea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you deal with it. <laughs> oh, brilliant! But yeah, amazing. It was incredible. Oh, I bet it was. Talking of birds that are hard to see or easy to see, you're lucky if you see a barn owl, you know, but you might have them near you. Hen harriers, you've got to go out of your way to see them. And they're really hard. You know, a lot of a lot of birders don't see them. A lot of nature lovers would like to see them. And the problem is because, like you say, of persecution, they're not as widespread as they should be. There should be hundreds more pairs of these birds all around England, particularly. Yeah. And, you know, they're persecuted in ridiculous numbers. I mean, a couple of facts that you'll know, but for people listening, 72% of satellite tagged birds are confirmed or considered likely to have been illegally killed. And that's 10 times more likely to occur over land managed for grouse shooting compared with other land uses. Since 2018, and this is just ridiculous, 52 birds known to be illegally killed or missing in suspicious circumstances on or near moors managed for shooting. You know, these are facts that are undeniable and change has got to come because the current plan as rolled out in 2018 the action plan just isn't working and i think bodies like the rspb are starting to look really seriously at the hen harrier issue because with all the best intentions in the world plans have been drawn people have said they'll make a difference and 52 satellite tag birds killed in the last two years is just not acceptable yeah tip of the iceberg Absolutely. And that's it. That's it. That's it. The ones that we know about as well. It's absolutely terrifying. So your little three chicks maybe stand a little bit of a better chance in Wales if they if they stay there. But that's it. If they stay there, you know, it was a bittersweet experience because whilst it's amazing to see them, I was very much aware that their future is very much unsafe and undecided, you know, and it could be it could get a lot worse for them very quickly if they decide to move off. Um, they could stay safe, but who knows what's going to happen. At the moment, they're doing well. The individual that's satellite tagged is doing okay. Um, Good. But, you know, it's it's kind of hold your breath and hope for the best. And yeah. conservation shouldn't be like that. You know, we no. should be seeing many more of these birds and they should be respected and loved because to see a hen harrier, I mean, you're never going to forget it. And they should be all over the place for people to kind of enjoy and look at and connect with. And mm-hmm. they're not. And it's... um. It's, you know, a very scary time to be a hen harrier. Very scary. And I think that's one of the problems as well with them because they are so elusive and so little known and and not seen that people who might classify themselves as an animal lover or a wildlife enthusiast, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily have them on their radar so much. But I think things are changing. I had a a great conversation with Yola Williams two or three years ago back at Bird Fair one time. And he was basically sort of saying that if they were celebrities, if they were put on like a Truman show, you know, so that people would care about them and get to know them and see them on their tellies, then it would be a different story. And I think he, he makes a good solid point yeah. there. I'd love to see a reality show about hen harriers so that people sort of uh, learn yeah. more about them and how awesome they are. Well, uh, Yolo was actually there when I went to see the nest. He, oh, he was he? Co- you can only have two people at the nest. So it was just myself and Keith that went there, but he was uh, sat on the hill with me as we were watching the hen harriers, the adults coming in and out. And um, with his that idea, yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah oh great now, but there's there's plans there's plans in action you know we've got hen harrier day coming around um for 2021 which is a great you know great way of celebrating the birds and also raising their conservation plight and we're looking at ways to you know shake things up a little bit and get them a bit more well known so you know we're in the very early stages of planning something but ah. hopefully hopefully if all goes to plan yeah, no, a few more people will be knowing about them. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. Great stuff. <laughs> so moving on. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> yeah, so bird number three is perhaps an unexpected species, one that p- probably most people will overlook, but one which I love very much, which is the classic wren. <laughs> Great little you know, bird. Yeah, I love it. It's a small, unassuming brown bird, one which is seen in most people's gardens so most people will have come across a wren at some point in their life which I really like because that's a species that a lot of people can identify and connect with um but the thing about the wren for me is its song it might be a small brown bird that lives in a hedge but 
you know, it is by no means a small little brown bird that lives in a hedge that could be seen as, you know, people find those boring. But they're not. It's anything but boring because of the song that they produce is so exquisite and extraordinary. Um, for me, I love animal senses. We often look at the world through our own eyes. Well, obviously we look through the world through our own eyes, but we often think that animals see what we're seeing or hear what we're hearing, feel what we're feeling. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And it's really hard to understand how different species perceive their environment because we don't have the senses that they've got. and We've got no idea really how they're exploring and interacting with their world. But we're coming closer to getting a slightly clearer picture. It's still very, very blurry. But, you know, every little bit of information helps kind of clear that up. And for me, I'm really, you know, fascinated with how animals kind of communicate and the way that their brain processes information. So typically with small birds, the faster your metabolism is, the more energy that you can produce and go it goes straight into the eyes and the brain and it enables you to process visual information a lot faster so if you think of a flock of birds taking off to us you know if we look at their wings it will just be really really blurry but to an animal which has perhaps a faster metabolism than us which birds do they'll be able to process that visual information a lot faster so whilst we're seeing blurs they're seeing very kind of precise and probably quite sharp wing beats so to me, that's pretty amazing. They're essentially seeing things in slow motion. Their time frame, if you want, is very different from ours. And that's not just a visual thing, but that's an auditory sound thing as well. Um, so the wren produces a really, really fast song. Um, it, like In about six to eight seconds worth of its song, it can produce upwards of 700 notes. Wow. 700 notes in six to eight seconds. That's crazy. Absolutely unbelievable and to us that sounds like a <laughs> kind yeah. of thing but for a wren they can pick out all those individual notes which to me is just you know incredible the wren has actually been nicknamed the meatloaf of birds which is quite <laughs> like um so you know whilst we're hearing this jumble mix of a beautiful song of course we hear you know we love bird song and to us it stands out because it's intrinsic beauty the details of it but if you're a bird it is so so different um, and science has shown that actually birds can detect changes in sound as quickly as 1.225 milliseconds. So they can change the notes, change those songs at such a fast pace that our human brains, because of our, in comparison, much slower metabolism, can't understand that information. But for the wren, I mean, of all the songsters, it is perhaps um, got the most complex song. Obviously, you've got the nightingale, which would certainly give it a run for its money. But um, as for you know, a bird which we all know and love, actually listening to its song is something um, which we can all appreciate. But to understand its song from its perspective is another thing. And that's why I love the wren, because every time I see one, every time I hear one, you know, they're cheeky little birds. They're very cheeky. They've got yeah. you know, this unusual breeding system, which is different from that of other songbirds. I'm always just thinking, you know, what is it like to live in a wren's world? <laughs> and that's a question that I often ask myself when I see different things. You know, what are they? How are they seeing the world in comparison to me? So that kind of science I find really exciting. The fact that time is different for different species. You know, bees, for example, move a lot faster, but they see things in a different way. So something that happens fast for us is in slow motion. For example, you know, looking at a fly, you can never catch a fly, and that's because they process information so much faster. So they see us coming even when we think we're being really fast. Yeah, and it's the same for kind of bird song. So that's why I've chosen the wren, because of its amazing ability to produce all those notes. They're incredible birds. They sound like, you know, when you hear one in a bush, they're almost like a little mini Geiger counter, aren't they? That, that sort of endless stream of pips and whistles and beats. They're incredible. I love the fact that, like you say, they're cheeky, they're jaunty, they're always there. You kind of take them for granted, like you said, but they're just so adaptable. They can nest anywhere. They live anywhere from up in mountains to gardens and cities. You know, I love the fact that they also sometimes in the winter roost in colonies, like little communal roosts, and yeah. they could be like dozens of them all cuddled up together. I love that kind of image. So sweet. So I know. Sweet. It's great. Wonderful They're little birds. Yeah. yeah. And there's always so much to learn. That's the great thing about it is that, you know, they're a bird that we see all the time and we think that we've got a really clear picture of their biology and their ecology. But actually, there comes, a, you know, more research and it blows everything out of the water. And yeah. it goes to show that even with the most 
kind of common well-known species that we've still got so much left to learn and that's why it's you know a great field of research to be in yeah absolutely but they do they are quite cheeky in terms of extra pair copulations so whilst ah. they, you know breeding whilst they have their kind of main pair bond if you want they do like to sneak off for a little bit of um extra fun shall we Ooh, say hey saucy yeah, little wren Saucy little wrens, exactly going on <laughs> off in the bushes over there. <laughs> right, moving swiftly on, let's <laughs> crack on. Bird number four. The spoonbill. I love a spoonbill. I just think any animal which almost looks like it could have been drawn in one of those kind of, you know, kid drawing competitions, <laughs> and it almost doesn't look quite real. I'm always really drawn to because I just think, how, how on earth did evolution come up with that one? Yeah. And the spoonbill for me is one of those. Because I look at it and I kind of scratch my head and think, what is that? I love it, but what is it? It's and, like um, bits of different animals put together. Yeah, and kitchen utensils. Yeah. You know, you just have a big bird and then stick a spatula on the end of it. I know, they're <laughs> of ridiculous. Yeah, of course, it's a really important bit of anatomy for them. But um, yeah, I mean, they're beautiful, you know, in their terms of their coloration. You know, there's, I think, six different subspecies of spoonbill worldwide. Um, five of those are white, are white, and one of them, the roseate spoonbill, is pink, like a flamingo almost. Um, so they're really, they're really stunning and quite a diverse group of birds, um, kind of really far ranging. But the Eurasian spoonbill, the ones which we have in the UK, only exist in a really kind of small area, and they live in these kind of uh, obviously wetland environments where their food is. They feed in invertebrates in the mud and sand, but they're very different from other birds which occupy a similar niche. So with herons and egrets, they have to feed in quite clear water because if you see them hunting, they go and stand out in the middle of the, the watery areas and it has to be crystal clear. So you'll see them, they'll walk out and they'll be very careful about where they put their feet because they don't want to disturb any sediment that might disable their uh, you know, vision um, when they're coming trying to hunt for small fish or invertebrates. So they're very careful where they put their feet and then they just stand still. They let all the sediment settle before then they go on the attack. And you'll see the attacks very fast. You know, they'll go through and just pick very quickly um, whatever they're looking at. Spoonbills, it's a different story. They don't have to worry about murky waters. In fact, the more murky, the better <laughs> for spoonbills, which I think is a great way of utilising a different habitat, which is, of course, why why they evolved the way that they did. And um, so their um, spoonbill is literally, you know, the perfect mechanism for sieving through the water. They've got these really, really small sensors all around the edge of their bill. They place it in the murky water and they kind of, they're the vibration sensors. So they can feel, you know, when they're getting close to any kind of prey item and they kind of sieve through it and they push their head from side to side to get their prey out. So it's a perfect adaptation for living in that environment. And um, the babies are really cute. The babies are really cute. And the reason why I really love spoonbills is because of a really bad dad joke, if I'm honest. I'm really sorry for this in advance. Come I on, just then. loved it. So what, what, do you, what do you call a baby spoonbill? I don't know. What do you call a baby spoonbill? A teaspoon. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I've got a confession about spoonbills. So I, it was a few years ago now. I sent a tweet, just a silly tweet, out on my Yolabirder account, and I just said, hi, BBC Radio 4, and I copied them in. I love tweet of the day, and I would love to share my story of the first time I heard the mournful song of the spoonbill. And I put that out stupidly as a tweet because spoonbills are silent birds and they don't sing. And they kind of got back to me and said, oh, we'd love to have you doing tweet of the day. So I got three tweets of the day out of a joke about the spoonbill. That's <laughs> and I had to sort of fess up to them afterwards, like, I, I can't do the spoonbill, I'm really sorry, but can I do the peregrine and the red wing and the wax wing? And they kind of went, yeah, okay. So, yeah. I, I oh, got, that's hilarious. I got onto the BBC with uh, Because of the Spoonbill. Cutlery-based birds, what more do you need? Brilliant. Exactly. Right then, let's, let's come on to your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. Now, this one I have picked purely for the aesthetic. Purely. And I'm not someone, you know, it's all about personality. I know that, you know, you can't just go based on looks. You've got to, personality is really important. When it comes to this species, for me, yeah, I mean, if, if you look like it, then you've got, you know, then it, you've got to be picked. Of course, it's the bullfinch, an absolute stunning bird, the male bullfinch, the colours on that individual, the pattern of it. 
is just so, so stunning. I get excited. They don't live in the New Forest in the south where I am. Um, you know, they're so, so stunning. They're found throughout the UK for most of the year. The male with its pink underparts and its black head and face is just incredibly striking. Um, but the, the numbers are facing, you know, severe declines. They've declined by 36% since 1967, which is, of course, uh, you know, quite a big concern mm. about them. They haven't so much declined in their range, but they've declined in their abundance. So they're still found in the areas where they have always been found. But it's um, it's their numbers which are, are starting to shrink. And they're not so much a species that we see in gardens. Only about 10% of gardens have bullfinches in them. So if you if you are somebody with bullfinches Ooh. in your garden, I'm very envious. I'm in the 10%. Are you? Yeah, we get them. Yeah, we get them quite a lot. I'm oh. dead. You've got goshawk. I've got goldfinch. Yeah. Like a dream bird. Yeah. Oh, no, they're fantastic. And I'm always pointing them out. Oh, the bullfinches are there. Yeah, we don't get them every day, but, you know, yeah. regularly. Yeah. Stunners. You must live quite close to forest then. Um, I'm about 10 miles out of Newcastle, so in, okay. in Northumberland. We've got trees around and, and farmland and stuff, so I guess, yeah. Um, but yeah, bullfinches, what a thing. I mean, I, I've purely picked it for their aesthetic. Um, yeah, and and that doesn't make I, you I, shallow, no. No, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> no, they do, but they do have. The, you know, they're quite a shy bird, which is quite nice. I like, but you know, something that's a bit elusive is always a nice um, challenge to go out and see it, or you know, something that looks that good and is quite secretive and shy. It just yeah. adds to that kind of mystique around them. I suppose. Yeah, and that and they're lovely. They're always in pairs. You know, the the male and the female. They feed each other. They're super cute, and and like you say, the males are stunning. Well, you've picked some cracking birds there, Megan, and I don't envy you the task of picking one of those five amazing birds to go up against my peregrine, but that's the deal here. You've got to do it. And oh. as some listeners will know, my peregrine didn't really do so well in the first series, so I've decided to mix it up a little bit for this one. So instead of me having to be the judge, I plan to come up with a variety of different devices to to make this a fairer contest. And today I'm invoking that age-old game show device of phone a friend or Zoom a friend. So <laughs> ready and waiting is our mutual friend and wildlife tele producer, Laura Howard, who's also done an episode of, of my podcast. So if you haven't listened, it's it's a really good one and she's lovely. So let's let her in. Hello. Thanks for waiting, Laura. We were we Hi. got carried away and we had a few birds to talk about there. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you had a lovely time. How are you, Meg? I'm good, thank you. How are you? It's nice to see you. Lovely to see you too. Laura, so you've come on today to help us out with the battle, the, the culmination of Golden Grenades, which is which is the best bird between oh, yeah. Megan's favourite and my favourite, the peregrine. So... I'm taking the pressure off myself this time by, you know, devolving all powers to you. So. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no, no pressure at all. Your check will be in the post if it goes the right way. Um, <laughs> Understood. So, Ooh, Megan. Okay, I see how it is. <laughs> Megan, this is crunch time. You've got to tell us which bird out of your five you are going to choose to go into this final Armageddon Arena battle with my peregrine. Which is it going to be? I've been dreading this bit because I never have favourites, but I have to have a favourite. Um, I'm going to go, and I'm going to pitch it here, because I feel like that's important, with the often underestimated, but beautiful, relatively common, so we all can connect with it, Wren, because of course their ability to produce that amazing song that we can't often perceive with our own ears but when we slow their song down hear all those stunning notes then we get an insight not only into how they communicate but with how they interact and hear their world she's made a very strong case amazing birds a, a spring watch favorite I'm not even going to make my case for the peregrine we know they're awesome they look awesome they are <laughs> awesome they kill stuff Fastest bird on the planet. Come on, Laura. That's the title. You need to remind me, how do you usually make your decision? Is it which of these would win in a fight? Is it which is the most beautiful? Is it which just over what how what what are my criteria? Or is it just go with my heart? It's there are literally no criteria. It is literally which do you think is the best out of those two? Which one, maybe there's another way of thinking about it. Which one would you have as your demon if you had to? This is tricky. I really love a wren. I learned last year, I think maybe even working with Megs on the watches, 
I learned for the first time that I think the male will prepare and make six or seven individual nests and then find a female to tour her around all of his efforts in all the different homes. She eventually chooses one and then he lines the net. They line the nest together once she said, I like that one, please. I that's know. very that's so dedicated. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It's amazing. It's a lot of work. Whereas I'm afraid so the peregrine is what, a tray of gravel? <laughs> yeah, but that's <laughs> Yeah, you, so, you, you make a very good point there. I can see where this is going. It's minimal effort. You know, the peregrine just sits down, creates a little kind of bowl shape, and that's all the effort it does. But the male wren, you know, for its short lifespan, puts so much energy into all those nests. It tries so, so hard, you know, and that beautiful song, it might be small, it might be just a little brown bird, but their behaviour is extraordinary, and you can't argue with that. They don't kill things as much or as brutally as peregrine falcons. They're not as fast. But I'd argue that they are equally as stunning, if not more so. Yeah. Come on then, Laura. <laughs> I'm, af I'm afraid I'm with Megs. No! Yes! <laughs> <Send for> me. <laughs> yes! Oh, man, we've kicked off this series <laughs> exactly the way the last one ended, with the peregrine doing badly. But this week's winner of Golden Grenades is Megan's Wren. Please. Laura, thank you so much for doing that. Even though wasn't the outcome you were hoping for, I, was it? It, it another, really wasn't. Another really was. defeat for the peregrine. Who would have thought it? <laughs> I really need to think through this format. But <laughs> thank you, Laura, for coming on, and thank you to Megan for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat. Just before you go, have you got a, a couple of minutes quickly to tell us about what you've got planned coming up? Obviously, Spring Watch soon. Um, so Spring Watch will be starting end of May. So I think we're all very excited to be getting our teeth back into. And yeah, so lots of different bits and pieces, different bits of projects. I'm currently writing for a new project, which will be announced very soon. Maybe exploring a bit more of an adventurous side myself of, you know, of wildlife, going and trying and testing myself, putting myself to the limits to see what happens. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. You're going full backshell. Well, you know, I'm not sure I could go Steve, uh, you know, full Steve backshell, but I can try. I need to get to the gym first, <laughs> I think. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll look forward to, to those projects coming up. Thanks again, Megan. Thank you for having me. Well, that's your lot for this week, folks. Please join me again next week, where my special guest will be the conservationist, wildlife writer, and passionate advocate for London's biodiversity, Kabir Kaur. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>